0: Hello there Jeff.
1: Hey Zane, how's it going buddy?
0: Good, good, good to have you on the show. It's been a while since we've talked uh, in depth about a couple of things and uh, happy to have you on board today over Zoom.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. You know, it's uh, it's been a little bit since we've been able to connect in person, but uh, it's always great having a conversation with you and looking forward to uh, what we chat about today.
0: Totally. Do, do you think the cold days are over here in northern Alberta? Like, are we getting closer to the promised land that is spring?
1: Well, you know it's Alberta, so we're closer, but it's it's not over yet. I mean, we, we're probably going to warm up for a little bit here, but then you know you wait till end of March, we'll get another dump of snow and another you know week of minus twenty, and then hopefully it's over. But I, I don't think we're out of the we're in the clear quite yet. Hmm.
0: I got another icebreaker for you, Jeff. Um, what's prettier, Bant from the summer or bant from the winter?
1: Banff in the winter, as far as aesthetically, just the, the snow on the trees, you know, if it's, if it's that time where there's snow on the trees and it hasn't like fallen off or melted off yet, and it's got that kind of frost and the mountains are just snow covered, uh, and you can see the, the spruce really sticking out through the side of the mountains, just that, that green kind of popping out. I think Banff in the winter is aesthetically um, more pleasing, more beautiful. But Banff in the summer is probably more enjoyable, as far as just being able to do more activities.
0: Yeah, you get all the lush greenery and all the nice trees you see on the mountains in the summertime. But then I look at the main street, kind of closer to Christmas time when it's snowing. That really gets me fuzzy in my stomach. Like I, yeah. that that's Banff to me.
1: Well, what, what about this for a dark horse? Banff in the fall.
0: Oh. Ooh.
1: When you got that nice orange from some of the trees yeah popping through you know there's that kind of like there's a three-day window where all the trees still have all their leaves but they're reds and oranges and browns and it's just this cacophony of different colors and
0: yeah that's a new contender for me good call <laughs> <laughs> i maybe, love it maybe
1: we just settle that bamf Generally speaking, it is beautiful all the time.
0: Yeah, we 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 can find some common ground on that. <laughs> it's it's just beautiful in general. Uh, so Jeff, Agreed. so Jeff, why don't you get into the thick of it here? Why don't you tell our audience here a little bit about yourself, your career, and your background?
1: Well, my career, my background. Well, uh, you know, grew up kind of in a farming, ranching community uh, out by Ludminster when I was younger, and. Uh, Ended up here at Edmonton uh, via playing for McEwen Griffin's uh, hockey team at uh, McEwen University. Uh, So did that for a while and then just ended up uh, staying here, had some opportunities that came up here and kind of stuck around here, got married, started working, uh, kind of worked for one company for uh, seven or eight years, I guess it was, and worked my way up from kind of the bottom of the 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 rung there and kind of climbed up that ladder so to speak to uh, being kind of second i guess in in command uh, of that company at least for our uh, alberta side of things and and uh was operations manager there overseeing you know 25 30 employees and that was good uh and then kind of moved on from there got into some business ventures I got into uh, a company uh, doing uh, um, advertising for different businesses, web design, social media management, uh, all that fun stuff, and uh, then sold out of that, uh, I guess, a year or so after I kind of got into it and working with uh, a company in equipment uh, sales right now which has uh, been uh, a good time uh everyone there has been been great so that's been an enjoyable uh experience so far and then have my hands in a few different business ventures as well my wife and i run a company together that that uh has a heavy focus on working with people in personal professional development uh some e-commerce platform stuff and then have another business that just launched uh, with a couple of business partners in the hvac industry Uh, that's essentially we're creating a marketplace for companies in the HVAC uh, industry, which uh, for people that maybe aren't sure what that is, it's heating, ventilation, air conditioning. And I guess you can throw refrigeration in there as well. So anything from commercial to residential uh, components, uh, materials, products. So we're gonna build a segment into that as well uh, for people to advertise for big projects that are coming up where they need to hire, you know, an electrician or a plumber or, you know, um, a machinist, or whatever kind of uh, employees they need for upcoming pro- projects, they'll be able to put that out there. And, and yeah, just a place for people specifically in the HVAC industry to be able to buy and sell inventory and find employees or find uh, opportunities for work.
0: Very cool, Jeff. And your and my history together starts at Mr. Social Digital Marketing, where, where I was introduced to you as an intern. And you were a manager at the time with our our mutual friend, Mike. And, uh, you know, one thing I always knew about you from the get-go is you're a real go-getter. You know, you like to, and you actually gave me that book that I read, The Go-Getter, Go Figure. That's a good time to mention that. (laughs) And, uh, you know, you know what it takes to kind of, um, you know, find your success, find your your niche, and really go at it. And even more so, uh, find multiple streams of revenue. Uh, what, what advice would you give to somebody who's trying to to, to find more than one route to, to have to have a money stream?
1: Good question. Um, well, I think there's a couple things that that can go into that. One is sometimes people's skill and their passions don't always align perfectly. You know, a lot of people they want to work in something that they really enjoy doing uh but sometimes you're not the most skilled at that you know there's a lot of hobbies and stuff that i enjoy but i'm not nearly good enough to to make any kind of a decent living at it so one thing that people could look at doing is find something that you're good at that you have uh, a skill set in or a natural inclination for and kind of pursue stuff in that realm that can create a good income a good level of income for you and then you can start pursuing you know ventures in areas of things that you have passion around you know areas that you you just you enjoy and you love working in those areas and that gives you you know to me it's you have a bit of security because you have income coming in from a reliable source that you're good at but then you can also pursue other ventures outside of that that you have the time to build those skills and not have to rely off them solely for income. And you can slowly build that up over time. Uh, you know, that's worked well for you know my wife and I over the years. And, you know, there's going to be times where you're going to have to work a lot of hours as well. You know, I spent uh, 2020 where I was working kind of like 85 hours a week or so, you know, kind of say 80 to 90 hours a week. And you know that's a lot of a lot of hours, but there's a lot of learning, a lot of growth that happened in that time. And even now, I still work probably, you know, 60 hours a week. I would say, and you have to have a willingness to put in the hours um, to try to get ahead. Because if you do what kind of everybody's doing, you kind of get the results that everybody's getting. So if you're trying to create a life of significance, of abundance, and uh, above-average success—you're going to have to do things beyond what the average are doing. And you know, average isn't bad; it's totally fine. There's nothing wrong if you just want to do your nine-to-five, or you know, if you're working in a seven-on, seven-off uh, shift kind of thing. There's nothing wrong if you just want to do that, and then have your hobbies and and spend time with your family, and and that's totally fine. But if you're trying to get ahead and get beyond that you're likely going to have to put in some extra for a period of time
0: so basically what you put into it is what you'll get out of it the amount of effort you put into it essentially
1: yeah quite often that's the case and but there's there's a lot of things that factor into it right like the world today is very interesting as far as you know trying to build business and and trying to you know get ahead in that uh, avenue you, know, you have to have a business that's scalable, that has a market for it where you can actually generate revenue because you could have the best work ethic in the world and work 100 hours a week. But if you have a product or service that nobody wants, you're not likely to, to really get much further ahead. So you still have to have something that is valuable to other people. You, know, you have to fill a need, either a product that people are looking for or a service that people desire to to have. Uh, So you have to have something that connects to the people that they're willing to exchange their hard-earned money for whatever product or service uh, you're selling. Because if people don't want it, all the work in the world is not going to make it happen. So there's kind of a, a push and pull of, you know, don't just work mindlessly towards something. You know, figure out, a marketplace is that is maybe underserved. So for example, my uh, brother-in-law, he has a company called, uh, well, he started, the first one was called Welder Nation. And it was uh, appealing to obviously welders. Uh, he, he had kind of worked in the oil field for quite a few years and had gone into sales. And so he knew all these different people. he worked on welding, on, uh, not welding rigs, but oil rigs. And so he knew the, the lifestyle of it and he knew the people. So him and his friends started a clothing brand called Welder Nation, and that was doing pretty good. And then they branched off into that and started a company called Trollco Clothing, which was geared towards blue collar workers. And I was having a conversation with him a while back, and he said, really all we did is we found uh, a niche of people that were underserved in the market that didn't really have anything um, for them that was directed and targeted towards them and we just started making stuff that we felt blue collar workers would find appealing and so that's branched out into all kinds of stuff they just came out with a a lineup of of apparel for butchers they've got some kind of they've got some cool shirts talking about you know the work that butchers do and some good graphics and stuff and like yeah we just find segments that are underappreciated and underserved and we try to serve them and provide Stuff for them. So that's an a, a element of it as well, is just finding uh, areas where you see that there's a, a lane that you could make some headway in, and then you drill down into that.
0: Yeah, it goes back to that book, The Go Giver, that you gave me. That was honestly the quickest book I ever read. And, and the key takeaway I got from that was that, you know, we're always so consumed with what we want as an individual, what I want, what you want. But the reality behind success is what value can you offer people? You know, what can you give to somebody that's going to help them? And then in return, you can receive that. Give and you shall receive.
1: Yeah, 100%. You know, that's uh, that's a good principle to, to live by, you know, just in general is, you know, one of the things that I, someone had said to me was, you don't know the joy of giving to people until you give to people that, you know, can't do anything for you. So you're, you're just selflessly giving to them because you know, it's the right thing to do. And I know that's kind of a a tangent off of the business side of things, but it's kind of a life principle, of, you know, just give to people, serve people and, you know, that will eventually come back around to you. So, you know, in the business world, if you, Start producing a service or a product for people that don't get a lot of love in the marketplace uh, and you diligently put out stuff for them or provide service for them, you know, that will hopefully eventually take off. But like I said, there's so many uh, just when you're trying to build business, there's so many different aspects and elements to why does one business become successful and the other one doesn't that could be very similar types of companies and why does one take off and one doesn't sometimes we don't really know but uh, it's it's just finding that that avenue that you can pursue but like kind of going back to what I said uh, originally I like the idea of starting something outside of what you're currently doing to pay your bills so that you don't have that just stress that compounds on you of if I don't make this happen in the next few months, like I'm gonna go bankrupt or I'm gonna lose my house or I can't feed my kids. So, you know, for for Mike, uh, who you mentioned earlier, uh, when him and I were looking at doing another project after we left Mr. Social, we're like, well, what do we wanna do? Because Mr. Social was a thing where we kind of went all in, right? You know, I I quit my job. That was a pretty safe, secure job, made a decent uh, level of income, put a bunch of money into Mr. Social uh, with some other business partners, Mike was just uh, working for us there. He he wasn't uh, a partner at that time. Um, and then some of the other business partners, the values that we ended up not sharing became uh, kind of a, a chasm that couldn't be bridged. And uh, I decided to to leave that venture. But that was again a time where you're going, okay, we need to make X amount of dollars so we can pay all the employees. So we can put some money into the business so that I can pay myself and put food on my family's table. And there's just a lot of kind of you know, different stressors that, that go into that when you're kind of in a startup phase of things and you don't have a stable uh, income stream. So when we were looking at doing something else after that, we were like, well, what can we do that we can start to build something up that over time can just replace our working income? You know, once it's stabilized and secure then we can transition away from you know our jobs that we do to pay our bills and that's kind of the avenue that that we decided to to pursue and that's what led us to the hvac uh, business and, and all that good stuff
0: so even from what i've learned from you in my time working with you um, i know that you know how to talk to people communication is is key when it comes to negotiation but um what kind of advice could you give when it comes to earning the trust and respect from those you're negotiating with?
1: Oh, another good question. Uh, there's an interesting book that I was just going through a little while back. What was the name of it? The Challenger Sale. That's what it's called. And it kind of broke down the different types of salesmen or sales you know, women that there are and you know there's different categories there's the connector the person who just tries to build relationships and rapport there's the bottom line guy who just tries to drive the price like he just drops this price as low as he can to try to get the sale uh there's the lone wolf who's very good at selling they're usually a bit of a a hybrid of the there's another one that's called um I'm blanking on what it's called, but it's essentially the person that just like grinds it out. Like they make a million cold calls. They knock on a million doors and they, they, they're just like the numbers. Like they're like, if I put enough numbers through the system, eventually I'll make money. And so the, the lone wolf is a little bit of a combination of the relationship builder and the numbers guy where they don't mind putting in the work and they're decent that, you know, people tend to like them, uh, but they kind of do things their own way. They kind of don't follow the systems or company protocols necessarily, and but they get results, right? And uh, they're hard to control, they're hard to manage. And then there's the last one, which is the the challenger, salesperson, and they're a bit of a, a hybrid of each, but they also are are great at showcasing the value of what they're bringing, and helping clients find problems and fix problems that they didn't realize they had. So they're good at analyzing their client's business model and go, okay, well, I see this is what you guys are doing and that this is uh, an issue that you guys are struggling with. You know, here's a way that we could help fix that. Here's a solution for that. So they're kind of solution selling, uh, but not in the, in the sense of like, you've got this problem. Here's our product. It'll solve all your problems they go a little bit deeper than just offering a, a product or a service They actually help the, the customer understand the nature of their problems better and how that plays in the marketplace and then provides better solutions for that. And they aren't people that just drop their price. Uh, they aren't people that are super pushy, but they don't, don't have an issue asking for the sale. And it's a really interesting book. I would recommend for people that are getting into, uh, business for themselves or getting into a sales position, uh, to, to read that book. It was really, um, I was looking through that or I was, as I was reading through, it, I was kind of examining the different guys uh, at my work and which kind of box they kind of fell into as far as their particular style. And I'm like, Oh yeah, you was know, so-and-so he, he fits the, the lone wolf and Oh, so-and-so he's the numbers guy. Like he's making a million calls every day, all day. And, uh, it was really enlightening just to learn, you know, how I can improve that aspect of things. And so when it comes to communicating with people, be real, don't be, there's that kind of preconceived notion of what sales is, right? Where you're trying to like convince and talk people into buying something. And it's just, drop the pretenses in my opinion you don't need to have any pretenses just be real with people <clears throat> so when I'm talking to someone I'll be like yeah this is this is the deal this is what we're looking at you know say it's someone that wants to trade in a piece of equipment to buy a new one. I'll say took a look at your piece of uh, equipment ran it, looked at you know what we might need to fix up to be able to then turn around and sell it. You know, this is what we can give you for. And they might be like, oh, it's a little bit low. You know, I want to get a little bit more. I'm like, this is what we can give because we're going to have to put, you know, say we can give you $60,000 for it. Well, it's going to sell for seventy retail, but we're going to have to put, you know, $5,000 into some different repairs and stuff to get it to the point where we can then turn around and sell it for 70000 So that makes our company a $5,000 profit. You know, we have to make money or it's not worth us bringing a machine in. And most people understand that and they're willing to accept that. And uh, you're just straight up with people. Like, I don't beat around the bush. I just kind of tell them how it is. And, you know, people will respect that if they can sense. And you have to actually be genuine. You have to actually be real about it. Because if people can, if people sense that you're BSing them, they don't like that. People don't like being taken or being had. And so if they get. A sense that you're not being fully truthful with them or that you're um, scheming about how you can sell them on something they, they don't like that and they're going to back away from you. And so I think just being as real and genuine as you can when you're approaching people is kind of the best route to, to, to go as far as connecting with them and you build trust that way.
0: Yeah, well said, Jeff. I, I definitely like to talk to someone who's real and, and not always trying to, well, I mean, I know they're trying to do a job and sell something to me, but I also want them to talk to me as a human, not just a another sale. So that's a really good point to bring up. Just tying in some of the um, universal issues into this. Um, How has inflation and the supply chain issues affected the economy and how does that impact your new business ventures and beyond what you do um, personally, someone who's on the front lines of business?
1: So for my work, uh, how it's affected us is that we can't get product to sell. So for example, I sold seven pieces of equipment this past week, which is a phenomenal week. Like that's not typical. Uh, In a month, normally you're gonna sell between three and five pieces of equipment. Uh, And that's a, a pretty good month. And so I did seven this week alone. But the problem is the first one of those machines won't get here until July. And then some will get here in September and some are gonna get here in November. So we're pre-selling because production is so far behind that you're trying to get people to buy a piece of equipment that's not going to get here for four to seven months, and that can be difficult, uh, especially if people need a machine uh, to try to be like, hey, I can get you a machine in five months. So if they need a machine sooner, you know they're going to look and see if someone has a, a, a. that piece of equipment that they can get in a month or two. And so I started laying the foundation for that in October, November of last year, telling guys, Hey, if you are going to need equipment come springtime, we should be looking at putting an order in for that by January. Because if you wait until March, you're not going to be able to get a piece of equipment. You're going to be looking at September, October, November, so you can get that piece of equipment if you wait to order it until March, whereas last year, uh, guys could walk in and you could have a piece of them in a week or two. Right. You could get them that machine in a week or two. And so that's what people have been kind of accustomed to. But with computer chip shortages, there are some steel supply chain issues uh, as far as um, the, the steel that goes into manufacturing the, the construction equipment. So all those delays have added up to now be the they're way the manufacturers are way behind the eight ball. And so I, I know that there's going to be guys I talk to in the fall that are going to come up to me in March and April, say, hey, I'm looking for this excavator or, hey, I'm looking for this loader. Uh, you know, I need something, you know, in the next, you know, three, four weeks and I'm going to have to tell them, sorry, it's going to be five months. And, they are like, oh, really? I'm like, I, I, I told you in the fall that this is what the situation was going to be. And that also is something that, you know, negatively builds trust with people because they realize that you were being honest with them. You weren't just trying to sell them, you know, when you were talking to them in November, December, January about you need to order something now and then they put it off. Then when they come back to you and you tell them like, sorry, we we don't have anything for you for four, five, six months. Like, oh, he was telling me the truth. He wasn't just trying to sell me on something. And so, you know, it builds trust, but unfortunately, you don't have a lot of options to help them at that point. Um, So that's kind of how it's impacted my job uh, as far as supply chain issues is we just don't have a product to sell, uh, which makes it interesting when you're in a sales position. And then as far as... Uh, You know, my wife and mine's company, it hasn't really affected us at all because we're not dependent upon uh, supply chain issues and that kind of stuff. So that's been fine as far as that goes. And, you know, COVID has actually made a lot more people want to look at what are ways that I can improve myself? What are, you know, small part-time businesses that I could get into uh, to just make a few extra dollars? Uh, And so there's a lot more people that are wanting to take more Uh, ownership over their finances and over their financial situation than just relying on their job because they saw how quickly that can be taken from them if the government says so and so that's actually been kind of a a boon for for my wife and mine's company and then as far as the HVAC company well that kind of stemmed from someone that we knew in the industry that was complaining and telling us all about the supply chain issues that they're having in that industry and How they used to be able to order, you know, this uh, boiler and have it in eight to 10 weeks. And now they're being told 30 weeks for that same boiler. And so the idea kind of spawned from, well, there's companies that have equipment sitting in their inventory that ordered it for a job. They brought it in. They didn't end up using it. And now it's just taking up space, being depreciated. So if those companies maybe want to put some cash back in their, their bank and clear up inventory space in their shop here's an avenue that they can sell it and companies that are looking for product that can't find stuff for six to 12 months now well here they can you know search through the the website and find maybe what they're looking for and have it in a week or two instead of you know 20 or 50 weeks so that's kind of how supply chain issues uh, led us to what we started now with hvac I uh, it was just seeing uh a hole in the market where companies were struggling with inventory and and going well if we can put something up that might be able to help them fulfill those inventory constraints uh, more effectively you know we'll see how it goes so that's kind of why we pursued that avenue
0: yeah it's the same with the auto automotive industry right now too i hear that uh, used cars are a hot commodity right now i'm trying to sell my truck and i've talked to a number of different people now that said man Trade that in now. Like you can get some good money for it because there ain't a lot of cars on the lot, and and they need that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, as long as uh, they can get a car for you.
0: Yeah, <laughs> that's, exactly.
1: That's the catch. Twenty two is all the dealerships are more than willing to take your vehicle in on trade, but can they provide you with an alternative vehicle in the meantime? You know, I have some customers that they have. Uh, they got some SUVs in, and they don't have, so they're driving them, but the seat heaters and the steering wheel heaters don't work because they're waiting for the control module to come in for them. So once the dealership can get those control modules in, then they'll just install them. But they delivered them without some of the components working because they couldn't get the chips to run them. But dealerships are now going, well, They can still it still runs and drives, everything's fine, there's just going to be some of the luxury aspects of it that they won't be able to utilize until we can get these chips in. So that's what a lot of dealerships are doing now is delivering vehicles that aren't fully completed, but still obviously operate fine. They just won't have all of the electronics and and everything that are working uh, quite yet.
0: Yeah, it's a a complicated beast. But, But Jeff, just to switch gears a little bit here. I kind of wanted to get your take on this. I know that you're a real family man and you come from humble beginnings, you know, a blue collar family and whatnot. And I know you've talked about potentially getting into the political realm eventually down the road. I know we've discussed that in the past uh, very briefly, but. Does a community connection and having a firm grasp on traditional family values give you a ton of perspective as you proceed through your professional career and navigate the challenges of society? Is that an asset to doing business and being able to relate and potentially even getting into a realm such as politics for the average commoner that just lives in town here or beyond?
1: I think community is huge. I think one of the reasons why we have a lot of divisions in the world right now and a lot of polarity is because we've lost the real sense of community. You know, people don't know their neighbors in the same way that they used to. And when you don't know your neighbors, you start to just believe what social media says about everybody. So, for example, so in Canada, you know, the two kind of main political parties, you know, the Conservatives and the Liberal Party. 20, 30, 40 years ago, you could have a neighbor, you know, like say you're a liberal, you could have a neighbor who's conservative, and you guys could get along just fine. You had disagreements about some policy issues and stuff like that, but you could get along just fine and you'd help each other out. You know, you'd come help him put up a fence or he'd help you fix the car or whatever it may be, right? You lived in community, you know, you're going on a vacation and they would check on your house for you. And you had that community, that neighborhood. Uh, around you where you kind of knew people and you had trust and you had relationships around you even if it wasn't the deepest most meaningful friendships but you had connection you had a rapport with the people uh, living around you and now with people staying in more you know the rise of social media people are less connected to those that live around them and so you start to believe all these things about like oh well Conservatives or this or Liberals or that, and it makes it seem like the divide amongst the regular person is greater, I think, than it actually is. And if we made more of a concerted effort to get to know the people around us, even if they vote for a different political party, you probably realize that you share a lot more in common than you don't. And where you see the, the huge chasm is in social media. They amplify The differences and and minimize the similarities whereas when you had community you know back 20 30 40 years ago people amplified just innately the similarities and then they could have you know conversation about uh, or sometimes spirited debate about the differences but the similarities is what bonded people together and made for strong communities and uh, i think part of that is we have less and less people that get into politics that were just regular folks that were just doing, you know, regular average kind of jobs and thought, I want to try to make a, a difference in here. I have some ideas and I think I can make make a difference and, and do some good stuff for my community. You know, because a lot of times they would get into local politics and then if they did well there, then they might elevate to provincial politics and then maybe to federal politics And what we get a lot of now is people that go to school for economics, for political science, for different, you know, kind of studies like that. And they get a job working for an MP or an MLA or a city councilor, and they get a job as an intern there. And then from there they get a job working with the government and they spend their whole life just in government and working around politics. And so, When you're working for or within a political party since you're in university it starts to build in this is just my opinion it starts to kind of build up this viewpoint of what the other side is because that's the community that you're in now is this um hyper uh sensitive hyper polarized political community where you're always bickering and fighting with the other parties and they don't they, they never worked in regular jobs where they got to know their neighbors. They got to know the people in the community and realize, oh, they're just regular people like, like me. So I think we have too many people that come to university and go directly into working in the government and in politics, and they don't experience the average world it's because when you grow up and you live your whole adult life in politics, that's not real. That's not reality. It's it's kind of just this built-up mirage of what the world is. You, you think that things are this way or that way, but it, it's only that way in these political bubbles. It's only that way in these political echo chambers. When you get into the real world, you don't experience those things. That, that's not a thing. You know, Some of these arguments and fights over, over different things aren't real in the regular world. And so I think we need more people that have spent 10 or 15 years in the regular world that then go, Hey, I think I can make a difference. And then they hop into politics because you're going to get a lot more genuine people and you're going to get a lot more people that care about their neighbors and that are going to be less polarized and less antagonistic towards the other side and more willing to work cooperatively with them um, rather than, they've just always been diametrically opposed because they've spent their whole life working in politics from university. And that's all they know is this fighting against the other side. So I think we need more just regular people that get into politics. And that's going to bring down the boiling uh, a little bit in, in the country, I think.
0: And perhaps even maybe put a cap on that, you know, where you, you serve your duty for a certain amount of time and then fresh new faces get a chance.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Uh, I think having cap on ser- service time for government uh, officials, I think, would be useful. Just so you don't get people that want to – you know, you, there's areas where you know a conservative is going to get elected every year. An NDP is going to get elected every year. A Liberal's going to get elected every time. And you know that those areas are never changing – And so you can get people that get into, get elected in those areas, and then they just sit there for 20 or 30 years. And they don't really do a whole lot sometimes because they know that they're going to get elected in this area every year because of the party that they're a part of. And they don't really contribute a lot. They don't do a whole lot. So I think to get people where you can only serve, say, it's three terms, so like 12 years, right? they know that they have a finite amount of time to come in and make a difference and try to improve the community that they're representing. I think they would people would come in and be a lot more disruptive, if you will. They wouldn't just kind of go along with the status quo so much and just be happy to collect their, their paycheck. They would really kind of like, how can I make my my area better? How can I, you know, make life better for the my representatives that uh, I'm was elected by. So I think term limits is a way that that you could do that just to get people that are eager to want to make a change and want to move things forward and not just kind of settle in and collect a, a paycheck. So I think that would be a good idea, something that should be explored at some point.
0: Absolutely, Jeff. And uh, when I listen to people like you, um, someone who I admire and respect very much, I look up to in a lot of ways. And when, when I hear you talking like this, it inspires me as a young person, because that's a direction I might want to take down the road too. maybe I want to get into politics and kind of um, be part of the change and, and see what I can do with the for the community. So I really appreciate you talking about this. Just to kind of lead into the final segment of our show here, Jeff. I know one of the very first stories that you told me when I met you, um, you told me you had a shot at playing major junior hockey in the WHL. Mm-hmm. You want to go into that story a little bit and how that kind of shaped you as a man today? Because I know you were as tough as nails back then and you like to drop the gloves a little bit. So why don't you get into that story a little bit?
1: Well, my hockey journey was was very interesting. Uh, you know, if we backpedal a little bit, you know, I, I played in a small town. You know, only had one team. You played in, you know, whatever league you were in. You didn't really get a – there wasn't options to go and play higher levels of hockey. Uh, Lloydminster was the closest city to us, and they didn't allow outside players to come and play in Lloydminster. So when I was 14, uh, I actually went and played in Wainwright, which was like an hour and 15 or an hour and 20-minute drive each way from where I lived. Uh, to play double-A hockey in in Bantam because, like I said, Lloyd Minster wouldn't let outside players come until the year after that because we beat the pants off Lloyd Minster in the league championship series. And then the year after that, they changed the rules to allow outside kids to come play in Lloyd Minster because what happened was all of these players like me from Marwayne, guys from Kitscotti, Vermillion, uh, Paradise Valley, like all these small towns that had, you know, one or two really good players – that could play at that higher level, well, Lloyd wouldn't let them come and try out even. So we all went to Wainwright and we all kind of put this like super team of these small town, you know, superstars together. And then we just, you know, waxed Lloyd in the finals and we swept them. And after that, Lloyd changed their policy to allow these small town kids to come try out there. (laughs) Awesome. Uh, So that was a, a, a lot of fun. That was a great year. We obviously won the championship. And I uh, went to a bunch of junior camps uh, after that. Then the next year as a 15-year-old, uh, I decided just to play in Marwain again. I could have gone and played A, but at the time, uh, my dad was just coming through uh, two different bouts with cancer. So he hadn't really been able to work much over the last five, six years. So, you know, money was pretty tight in the household. And my parents and grandparents just kind of like scraped and... and grind it out so that I could afford to play that one season in Wainwright to play at that elevated level. And without really consulting them, they were fine. If I wanted to go play AAA the next year, they said, we'll get the money. We'll make sure we'll make it happen. But, you know, me having seen what they'd gone through the last, however long, I kind of made the decision without really telling them that I was just going to play in Marwain again that year. And I would just, you know, maybe, maybe after, after that once dad got working again maybe i I'd, I'd look at playing uh, at a higher level again just cuz for, for people that maybe don't know you know when i played in marrawain the cost for a season to play between your travel your fees and all that kind of stuff is probably like 3 grand right the cost to go play triple a hockey with your fees and your bussing and all the different stuff is more like 12 grand so it's a huge uh, discrepancy in cost so that's why I was like I don't want to make my parents have to pay all this money again for me to play I'm just gonna play in Marwain uh this year and then we'll see what happens next year and then what ended up happening was the second game of the season um I ended up dislocating my shoulder and breaking my collarbone and that whole season was over for me and coming out of that, you know, went to some more junior camps and I was kind of frustrated with some of the politics of hockey at the time. I'm not an overly big guy. I'm like just under 5'11", but at the time, you know, I was like 5'8", you know, 150 pounds, 145 pounds, and I was scoring quite a bit at these junior camps, but they weren't giving me a look. You know, I had teammates that I outscored and performed better that were getting looks from these junior teams even though I had like double the points of them because they were 5 foot 11 at 15 years old and 180 pounds and I was 5 foot 8 145 pounds so I was kind of frustrated by that so the following year uh, because I was also a soccer player uh, the following year I I chose to play indoor soccer and just play soccer year round that year so I did that And that was fun with that soccer team. I think we ended up winning six provincial championships between outdoor and indoor seasons over kind of my junior high, high school years. We had a really good team uh, in Lloydminster there. And so I played indoor soccer. And then the next year I went to a school in Saskatchewan. It was like a Christian kind of um, semi-private school, if you will. Uh, I moved to Saskatchewan worked for my uncle's welding company out there so that I could then go to the school there as a SASC resident and tuition was cheap. It was like a thousand bucks instead of 10,000 if you're a SAS resident. So I got my SAS residency, went to school there and played hockey uh, there. I, I decided to play hockey again that year and played for two teams there. They had two uh, boys teams in, in the high school. One kind of was, uh, uh, double. they call it, call it double A tier two and then one was double A tier one. And I played for both of those teams and it was a really great season Uh, with the AA Tier 1 team we ended up winning the Provincial Championship that year and it was a lot of fun Uh, the following year I went to Briarcrest College which plays in the ACAC which is like Nate, Grant McEwen uh, all those kind of schools so I played there as an 18 year old uh, which was young, there's not usually a lot of 18 year olds in that league so it 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 was a tough go and I ended up hurting my shoulder again and kind of in and out of the lineup that year just because my shoulder kept getting kind of buggered up uh, I tore the ligaments in it that year and so I was kind of in and out and it was a frustrating year and then the school actually cut the program I was in I was in a sports management program there and the school discontinued that program so I wasn't going to be able to graduate with that uh, degree in sports management so I was like well what am I going to do now well, the, the general manager for the high school hockey teams used to be the president of the Moose Jaw Warriors. And so he had the head scout for Moose Jaw come and watch a couple of my games towards the end of that season when I was playing at Briarcrest College and talked with him and he was happy. Obviously, you know, I wasn't going to be a, a first-line player there or anything like that, but they had a younger team at the time, uh, He said, we're looking for some guys that are going to be, you know, because I would have been 19 that season, uh, which is pretty old to be a rookie in junior. And he's like, we're looking for a couple older guys that are mature, that conduct themselves kind of in a professional manner, that can be a good role model for our younger players, both, you know, on the ice, sticking up for them, defending them, uh, also in the gym, how to work out, how to train. And then just conducting yourself appropriately off the ice. Because, you know, when you play junior hockey, there's a lot of opportunities to get into trouble and, and to do different things. So they wanted to have some older voices in the room to kind of be that guiding uh, voice for the younger guys in, in establishing themselves. So that was all good. Uh, was going to go uh, to camp there and, you know, probably play a fourth line, maybe a third line role kind of thing. And then... I also had gone to the Humboldt Broncos camp that spring, and that was kind of a funny story. Some of the players I was, because I was also coaching uh, a, a midget team while I was playing for Briarcrest uh, College. On way <laughs> I was coaching a high school team, and some of the players on my team had got invited to Humboldt Spring Camp, and I was going to drive them there, and you know, uh, chauffeur them around for the weekend during the the camp, and and then they started getting cold feet. Like a week before camp started they're Like oh, I don't know if we're going to go I was like go guys Like it's a great experience You get some more exposure You get to be around You know higher level players And see what it's all about And they're like Well I don't know They're kind of humming and hawing And then one of them goes Well how about this We'll go If you come and play on our team with us Because it'd be cool to play like with our coach I'm like we're five days before camp starts. I'm like, there's no way I can come into camp, and just like, because usually you have to be like registered for it like two months in advance, and so they're like, well, that's the only way we're gonna go is if you come and play as well. So I, like, okay, hey, fine, like I'll check it out. So I called them, it was like four or five days before camp starts. I think it was a Monday. Camp starts on the Friday. I called uh, and the trainer. Uh, the athletic trainer actually answered the phone like hey I'm looking to see if you have any space in camp got these players that are coming they want me to play on their team etc etc and he goes well we're pretty full and he's like I don't think we have a a spot for you and then I hear in the background someone goes where did he play this year and I found out later it was the head coach he could kind of hear the conversation that was going on and the trainer goes like what league did you play in this year? So I played in the ACAC and the coach goes, tell him he can come. And so I ended up going and playing uh, in the in the camp there and did really well. Then they were after me to come and play uh, with them. And I was like, no, I'm going to Moose Jaw. I'm going to Moose Jaw. Like the, the head coach would call me every couple of weeks to see how I'm doing and see if I was coming to camp. I'm like, no, I'm going to Moose Jaw. And then like, Two or three weeks before Moose Jaw's camp started, they changed head coaches. There was some sort of, like, he had some family thing coming up. He resigned, so they had to bring in a new coach. And then I guess as the scouting staff was going through the camp list with the, the new coach, he was like, who's this guy? I don't know who he is. And that was me, right? Because I didn't really have a name in juniors. Like, I'm not a known commodity by any means. He's like, oh, he's this guy. He played for Briarcrest in the ACAC. Uh, last year, uh, real solid guy, good good person, will be helpful for our young guys. We want to bring him in as kind of a mentoring role, play on count of third and fourth line. And the coach was like, he's 19, though. He's like, I don't want to bring in a 19-year-old rookie. That's that's just not how we, we do things here. And so he called me like a few weeks before camp and was like, sorry, I guess you can't come. <laughs> uh. So then I, I called Humboldt. Uh, Dean Brockman was the coach there at the time i called dean up and said hey dean i guess i can come to camp if you still want me to come he's like yeah come immediately and like within three days he had a billet lined up for me he brought me into town like a couple weeks before uh training camp actually started because he was like you're on the team like you're coming to camp but he's like you're on the team i'm gonna you're you're gonna be signed you're on the team so just come to town you can skate with all of our veteran players for a couple of weeks before main camp starts. Get to know them all because you're on the team. I'm like, okay, sweet. So went through that. That was fun. Uh, made the team obviously, and uh, was having a lot of fun there. And then again, my my darn shoulders. I took an awkward hit and just blew all the ligaments out of my shoulder again. And so they kept me around for another kind of four or five weeks to see how it would respond. And then after another checkup, the doctor was like, honestly, he's probably not going to be ready to play till like, March. And so at that point, they're like, you know, you only have so many spots on a junior team, and they have to make a decision. Do we tie up a spot on a player that can't play this whole year and maybe can come back in March and hopefully his shoulder stays together and doesn't get hurt again? Or do we release him now and bring in another player that can hopefully help us throughout the year. So that was the decision they ultimately had to make, which I completely understood, uh, was they had to release me and then bring in another player. And uh, so that's what happened that year, which was kind of sad because they ended up winning the national championship that season. Uh, So it would have been kind of fun to be a part of a national championship winning team, but my, uh, consolation is that at least I made the team that won the national championship. (laughs) (laughs) I can't do much about my my bum shoulders letting me down.
0: Yeah, that's great.
1: uh, After that, uh, I've just played for a team by Edmonton here for a junior team the next year. And then I went to uh, McEwen after that and played a a couple seasons there uh, for the Griffins. And that was kind of my, my hockey journey. But, you know, throughout that, I had a conversation with my dad when I was younger and, It was it was funny because when I was playing in Wainwright, I had a game in the playoffs, our first game of the league championships, where I didn't play well. I missed assignments. I didn't like. I know I didn't give my best effort, but I ended up scoring the game-winning goal in double overtime that game because the coach, right at the end of the second overtime, we had a face-off in our end, and the coach goes. I, I'd been basically on the bench the whole overtime, not playing because I was, you know, playing like crap the whole game and the coach comes to me and says there was, I think, 45 seconds left in the second overtime. The coach comes and says, if I put you out there are you going to win this face Because I was our best faceoff man. I said, absolutely, I'm going to win the face-off. So I ended up winning the face-off. We went down the ice. Uh, our D-man, I got on the 4 check knocked the puck loose, it went out to our D-man, he took a shot that was going wide of the net, I deflected it, it went in, and we won the game. But after the game, my dad goes, you won the game, and that was great the way you ended things, but I hope you're not proud of the effort you put out that game because I know it wasn't your best effort. And you should probably, before the next game, apologize to your coach for the effort that you gave him that game. And that was just something that always kind of stuck with me after that was if you're not giving your your effort, if you're not giving your all then I think you can't be fully proud of your accomplishments if you because I don't know, I felt like I I won the game in overtime for sure but it almost felt cheap, like I didn't deserve it because I hadn't worked for it you know, sure I did the right thing in that moment but I didn't I didn't contribute to the team actually getting there uh, at the end And I just wasn't satisfied with that effort. So what my dad told me about, you know, in whatever you're doing, just give full effort and I'll always be proud of you. Even if you don't accomplish as much as you want to, if you give your full effort, I'll always be proud of you for for doing that. And uh, the other thing that we had a conversation about, this was after I kind of missed those two seasons, after I broke my collarbone when I was 15 and then played indoor soccer the next year and then came back and played as a 17-year-old, we had a conversation where my dad goes, well, I hate to tell you this, but you're not the goal scorer that you used to be. And if you want to continue to try to keep making higher levels of of teams, you're going to have to be willing to do things that other players aren't willing to do. You're going to have to play a style that a lot of players aren't willing to play. And that's going to be tough because you're not the biggest guy out there. But if you want to try to keep progressing, you're going to have to be willing to do those things. So for me, that was things like finishing all my hits, blocking shots, becoming a really good penalty killer. Um, even fighting uh, was something that I, I picked up and, and uh, had to do to keep getting the attention of teams at higher and higher levels. So, you know, my last three or four seasons, every year I was leading the league in hits, in block shots my last four seasons of playing, I think I had around 45 fights because I just played a really hard nosed brand of hockey and other teams would get pissed off at you and would try to fight you all the time. And, uh, I would also stick up for teammates. You know, they get a cheap shot, they run the goalie, you know, I'd be in there sticking up for them. And, uh, it's funny. I actually got a text from my mom. She was in a, a government kind of a conference and she ran into someone there, uh, kind of recognized her name she was one of the speakers there and he said are you jeff maron's mom and she was yeah I, I am jeff maron's mom and he said oh that's hilarious he's like i played with him uh, in Vagerville. we were on the same junior team together and she's like oh that's that's so awesome you know and he's like you know one thing i always remembered about him even over the years is how he was always in there to stick up for teammates. And he always, he was our goalie and he was always sticking up for me if someone took a cheap shot on me. And that was because of what was embedded in me from my dad, just saying you should play as, you know, you should conduct yourself in a certain way, stick up for people, do the hard things, do the gritty things, do the things that aren't popular because you're not going to be able to keep making it to these levels just off skill because your skill's not where it used to be anymore. And so that was uh, just kind of a funny you know, thing that we're talking about this now that my mom just texted that to me yesterday about this conversation she had. She had. <laughs> and so that was kind of how I made it to higher and higher levels. You know, I don't want people to get confused. I'm not the most skilled player. I don't have – I just worked really hard and was in really good shape because I'm like, hey, if the third period comes and I can still skate at 100%, whereas other guys are fading because they're getting tired – That's only going to be helpful for me. And uh, that's kind of my hockey journey from being on the brink of major junior to that kind of falling apart to my bum shoulders, letting me down at every opportunity. (laughs) But, um, you know, I don't regret any of it. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun and I learned a lot, made a lot of good relationships from that. And just the, the learning of, okay, I need to readjust and reevaluate has helped me in business life as well because i was a superstar when i was young i scored all kinds of goals i had all all kinds of points and then as i got older and missed some time had injuries took a year off or basically two years off came back didn't have that same level of skill i had to readjust and reevaluate how i wanted to go about this and how i could still uh, accomplish certain successes but just in a different way and i think that's really useful in business as well because business isn't, you know, it's not always going to go the way you want it to. And you have to be willing to adapt and change your path and change how you're, you know, attacking certain things or what your approach is on certain things. Because your, your best laid plans aren't always going to work out for you. And if you're not adaptable, willing to relearn new things and to approach things in a different manner or to get perspective from other people, it's going to be hard to get ahead because, it, you'll eventually hit a wall, and if you just keep trying to hit that wall, you're going to stall out. Whereas if you look at, okay, how can I get around this wall? How can I get over it? How can I get under it? Hey, here's someone that's been on the other side of the wall. How, let me ask him how he got to the other side of the wall. So you constantly have to be willing to learn and adapt and not just be fixated on one way of doing things. So that was big lessons that I learned from my hockey journey.
0: Interesting story, Jeff. That's great um I'm sure everybody can relate well not everybody like lots of Canadian boys can certainly relate to that sort of story you have played hockey before especially myself too and over the last couple of years I've had a chance to kind of reflect on on my experiences playing minor hockey and a little bit of junior and whatnot I, I wouldn't say I always had the greatest experience there were good years and there were bad years you know I was similar in your boat too like I had I had some skill and I had you know lots of scoring seasons in my earlier earlier days but then there were, there were times when I made the bigger teams and I would have a, a much lesser role and be sitting on the bench. And unfortunately, being the immature kid that I was, I looked at that in kind of a bad way and I responded terribly, right? So, you know, you could even go as far to say as maybe pouting, you know? So, But when I look back on that experience now, no matter how bad an experience could have been, at least you can look back on it as an adult and, and see how it did shape you and see how you can actually take a bad situation in the future and turn it into positive. It's really hard when you're a kid and you're immature because you, t- you only see it sort of one way. But when you get older, you-, you can you can broaden your perspective and become more wise with that. And it, it definitely shapes how you become. So that you can apply it to your life as an adult so either way it was always going to be a learning experience whether you made it to to minor hockey high level or the nhl it doesn't matter like it still taught you something no matter what your experience was and it's funny you mentioned the 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 spring camps too the spring camps were always fun i went to one spring camp throughout my entire career i went to assured park crusaders aghl camp for spring and those are actually fun camps you know like. Usually it's just a bunch of scrimmages, right? That's the one I went to. Um, and if you go there as an unknown, like I did, you have maybe like a <laughs> less than five percent chance of, of doing something with it, because they're really just a money grab. Because you got to pay your way to go there, uh, unless you were unless you were like pre-scouted and stuff like that, and then they specifically ask you to come. So you, I understand the way it, the whole thing works, but you still get that one little teensy weensy opportunity. To show something, and you got to stand out in some way. You either got to make a big hit, you got to fight, or you got to score at will. And in that tournament, or well, I guess it was kind of like a mini tournament because it was throughout the weekend. I was scoring at will, and I was playing with some good players. So, you know, come the end of camp, and I'm talking to their their GM and coach, and and they said to me, they said, "Hey, Zane, you know what? You you made an impression at our camp, and we would actually love to bring you to main camp this year." But we have a lot of veterans returning and a couple of young players in mind that we're really taking into the process further to have on our actual team for the upcoming season. So unfortunately, it doesn't make sense for us to bring you in right now. And I was heading into my third year of midget at that time. So they were kind of expecting big things of me that year, though. They wanted me to make the AAA team and kind of be on the hierarchy there and make sure I'm, you know, progressing along the way they want but I ended up playing double A that year instead. And I think they came to like a, a, a game or two just to kind of check me out a little bit. Cause that's what they said they would do. So anyways, come the season after that, when their next spring camp is coming, cause they want me to come back to their spring camp again. I get the invite in the mail, but I'm also scheduled to go to Mexico <laughs> with my family and friends during that camp. So I, I guess you can, you can see where mine's my, my, uh, mindset separates from someone like uh nathan mckinnon's when he was my my age at that time when he's got hockey and nhl in the brain i got mexico and food and drinks on the brain <laughs> yeah. so so that's that's where my uh road kind of ended there other than playing for my local junior team the leduc Riggers. shout out to them junior b <laughs> so it's just funny how how our paths kind of lead right you think you're going to be an nhl player one day that doesn't work out so you find a new path right
1: Yeah, 100%. And, you know, you you made a comment that's like you're you're always learning, you're always growing. And, you know, John Maxwell talks about that. He has a book that's called Sometimes You Win, Sometimes You Learn. Because, you know, maybe you didn't learn stuff in the moment when you were young and and you mentioned that you were maybe pouting and stuff about certain situations. (laughs) But now as an adult, you're looking back on it and you're learning from that scenario. Okay, so this is what happened. This is how I reacted to that. And that wasn't a great reaction because that didn't help me move forward. That didn't help me get better. And so one of the things that John Maxwell talks about is you're never losing. Even if you don't succeed at something in that first attempt or second or third attempt, you're never losing as long as you're learning from the experience and you're getting better and moving forward from it. So you're either winning or you're, you're learning from it. You only lose if you quit and if you choose not to learn anything from the negative experiences you have. Because you know, the other thing is you can't control what happens to you or what other people do to you. You can only control how you respond to what happens to you. And that's a big separator that I've learned in life is people that can control how they respond and act in a measured, thoughtful way and introspective way will generally get ahead uh, more quickly and to greater degrees than people that are just responding um chaotically or erratically and not really thinking through the response because that's all you can control you can't control what happens to you in life necessarily just how you respond to it so making sure that you're always learning reflecting on what you're going through and getting better from it will help you to be able to respond and react in a more positive way as you move forward
0: and i'm glad i learned that in my 20s rather than my 50s or 60s so that's great (laughs) 100 percent. yeah
1: yeah they say that uh with age comes wisdom but one of the things you learn as you get older is sometimes age comes alone
0: yeah exactly
1: and that's just a byproduct of people not learning from the experiences that they go through they just you don't get better you just get older
0: yep for sure jeff well jeff that brings us to the end of our segment today I had a really great conversation with you. I love getting in-depth with you about a variety of different topics. So thanks for, for coming on today, Jeff.
1: 100%. Thanks for having me. Yeah. You know, we'll have to do this again, and uh, maybe I'll have some questions. I'll start grilling you about your your life and your background.
0: Yeah, please do, man. That sounds great. Looking forward to having you on again.
1: Okay. Well, thanks so much. I appreciate you having me on.
0: Yeah, no problem, Jeff. And thank you to our loyal listeners of Shatter the Glass. Thanks for tuning in today. We'll see you again next time. I'm your host, Zane Tomich.